0: Ahoy, authors! You're listening to The Writership Podcast, a show focused on helping indie authors master self-editing skills. So come aboard and get ready to find the treasure in your manuscript with hosts Leslie Watts and Clark Chamberlain.
1: Welcome to episode 128 of the Writership Podcast. Today we're talking about how to take a story that's pretty good and turn it into wow, you've got to read this story. To learn more about the podcast, visit writership.com/slash podcast. Today I'm joined by my friend Lori Puma. Lori is a StoryGrid-certified editor who helps writers with partially finished or meh manuscripts turn those stories into novels readers can't put down. To find out more about Lori, visit LoriPuma.com. Welcome, Lori. I'm so glad you could join me today.
0: Thanks, Leslie. I'm really excited to talk with you.
1: So... I know, this is kind of last minute, but I'm wondering if you brought a quote
0: with you? I did. So this is a quote from um, Maya Angelou, the poet and author and just all-around excellent human being. Um, The quote is, I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel.
1: So, yeah. what, what does that bring up for you in terms of both re- human relationships, but then also story?
0: Yeah, I mean, for humans, I mean, like, you know, I was very close to someone who died, and um, I. The only thing that I remember now, like five or six years later, is like how he made me feel. Mm-hmm. And I think that like, our goal as writers is also just like, you know, people aren't going to remember our fantastic dialogue or, you know, like the description of the action, but they're going to remember how our stories made them feel.
1: Yes. Oh my gosh. Right. Because the stories that really touch you and, you know, are moving or just really enjoyable, it seems are the ones where I have, I can conjure the feeling as soon as I hear the title or the name of the author. And it's just a lovely, that's an effect that we really want to create in our stories. Exactly. So are we going to talk today about how we might do that?
0: (laughs) You are so smart.
1: (laughs) Excellent, excellent, excellent. Now let's turn to our submission. It's from Kevin Glasgow called Night Fishing. It's a coming of age or worldview maturation short story of about 3,200 words. It was not Yet published at the time of recording. Now, I won't be able to read the whole story uh, because of time constraints, but I urge you to go and check out the show notes where you'll be able to read the story in its entirety. My forehead pressed against the door. I'd have fallen flat on my face if it opened. Going to bed. Silence. My voice was crackled sandpaper. Gonna chainsaw the Miller's Magnolia before I go upstairs? I paused, then added, Naked! A chair squeaked. Very well, he said, his voice hollow as a rotting tree. That's how it went every night since Mom died. My father was a law professor, buried himself in law books behind a closed door. A brilliant mind, people said. A legal scholar. Whatever the heck that was. But he didn't know diddly-squat about raising a 13-year-old. We spoke different languages, and our translator was no longer in the house. I spent my free time exploring the little Harpeth River that snaked through the back of the neighborhood. I liked picturing the distance the water traveled. The little Harpeth fed the Cumberland, and the Cumberland streamed into the Mississippi and ran south all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. I knew the deep pools where the smallmouth bass stacked up like cut firewood, and the gravel shallows where the largemouth feasted on springer flies. The mood of the river changed daily, and I learned its habits. Muddy brown after a thunderstorm, and green as salamander during a dry stretch. The fish were tourists, stopping to eat and rest on their journey. And I knew how to catch them. I climbed into bed knowing sleep would be impossible to find, especially that night. The next day, July 18th, was the anniversary. She'd been gone for two years. Felt like 150 dog years. My memory of her had faded like sidewalk chalk. I tried to recall something, anything. The sound of her laugh, the color of her hair, came up with a big nothing. I drifted off into nothingness. Henry! I was dreaming. A repeat where I hover above the earth and people look like scurrying ants. I rolled over. The pillow felt damp on my cheek from either sweat or tears, maybe both. The voice again, Henry, are you awake? I sat up and rubbed my eyes. The professor was standing at the door, his silhouette lit by slices of moonlight cut by the blinds. If he were holding a paper plate, he would have looked like a Methodist minister waiting in line for green bean casserole. He wore creased khakis, a white Oxford cloth shirt, and loafers. Dad? Get up, son. I stretched. What time is it? He looked at his watch. 1 a.m. I shook my head to clear the cobwebs of sleep. Meet me at the car and bring your fishing apparatus. He disappeared. Had to be a dream, but I pulled back the sheet and stepped onto the floor. Awake. The professor had gone stark raving mad. He'd lost his marbles. I threw on a t-shirt and shorts. I went to my closet and grabbed two fishing rods, my best bait casters, and slipped my tackle bag over my shoulder. I had all my fishing apparatus as he called it. Curiosity gnawed at me. I went out the front door into the darkness. The smell of magnolia blossoms and cut grass was thick enough to taste. A million crickets chirped. He was standing behind the old Volvo. The trunk was open. I stored my gear and climbed into the passenger seat. The Volvo sputtered to life. Where are we going? He looked at me through his round silver rimmed glasses, fishing. He sounded like we were going to Kroger to get bread. Now it was 1am. And as far as I knew, the professor had never been fishing in his life. Something was seriously wrong. Where? Radnor Lake, of course. Now I knew for sure he was crazy. Radnor Lake was a state park smack in the middle of Nashville, a protected sanctuary of nature, hiking trails, and a pristine lake. The park rules read like novel. No running, no dogs, no impure thoughts, according to Bobby, my Catholic friend. And on and on. Can't fish at Radnor. It's against the law. A faint smile crossed his face. He revved the engine and backed out of the driveway. I considered the situation while we drove. No one had fished Radnor in 50 years. It was untouched, unfished. I thought about bass, huge lunkers, with unlimited food sources. Bass that had never seen a lure my pulse raced okay here we're going to move to the toward the end of the story um, what you need to know is that when they get to Lake Radnor they have some difficulty getting down there to the lake down to where the lake is and then the narrator's father has a lot of trouble casting. nonetheless they hook a big old fish but soon they have, company. And that's where we picked the story up. Two cars arrived, engines growling, a park ranger and a metro police cruiser. We stepped back to shore. What do we do? I whispered. We listen. He said. His voice was calm. I wanted to run. Headlights surrounded us. The ranger spoke first. He was mid-thirties and intense eyes. Hold it right there. Park is closed. Y'all are trespassing. And there is no fishing. The police officer got out of the car, stood by the ranger. He was a linebacker squeezed into a police uniform. The professor bent down and picked up his rod. We have a right to be here. The ranger's eyebrows narrowed. He looked at the police officer for reassurance. My stomach nodded. Then the professor did something I will never forget. He flipped the rod over his shoulder and launched a perfect cast into Radnor Lake. The ranger's face exploded. They climbed down the slope towards us. Professor Winston, the police officer said, in the flesh. The officer turned to the ranger. The professor right here gave a lecture at the police academy on constitutional law. Darn good teacher. The ranger was not impressed. I don't care if he's the governor. He's breaking the law. I'm officer Randy Owen. Is this your son? the the professor nodded. Well, you got yourself in a mess. the ranger growled in the officer's ear. The officer sighed. I'm going to have to take you downtown. State code 456. I understand, the professor said. My legs felt like jello. We were going to jail. I had no one to call. We entered the police station. I expected a room full of cops and ringing phones like on television, but it was quiet. Sit here, I'm not going to put you in the tank with the drunks. We sat on a bench while Randy completed paperwork. Are we going to jail, I huffed? No, we are going to have a talk with the judge. After an hour, Randy walked us into night court. There were rows of scarred wooden benches filled with people, lawyers, cops, and criminals in handcuffs. Clerks shuffled paperwork. The judge was a bulldozer with gray hair. He towered over the courtroom from the podium. Randy stood. Our turn. We followed Randy to the front. The judge looked up. Professor Winston? He eyeballed the ripped shirt and muddy khakis. Looks like you've been ridden hard and put away wet. What on earth are you doing here? Randy will explain. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a special night. We have an honored guest, one of the leading constitutional scholars in the country, right here in my courtroom. I couldn't tell if he was serious or mocking. Is this your father? I nodded. Yes, sir. The er came out much higher than I wanted. What is what is the charge? Randy glanced at his clipboard. State code 456. Trespassing. Radnor Lake. He paused. And fishing. The judge squinted. You went fishing at Radnor Lake? Words stuck to the roof of my mouth. Uh, uh. Are you represented? I will be representing us, the professor said. Well then, how do you plead? My stomach flip-flopped, waiting for his answer. Not guilty, You put me in a tough spot. State law has jurisdiction. Judge Kaufman, may I address the court? Go right ahead. I ask that the court consider Billington versus the United States. The professor strolled across the courtroom, back and forth. Nature is the most basic human need. His hands made gentle circles as he spoke. The criminals hushed, the police officers and clerks stared. He became a storyteller in front of fire. He spoke of the Founding Fathers and the Constitution. He quoted Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King, and Kramer from Seinfeld. The courtroom was entranced. I couldn't take my eyes off him. The professor continued. He cited the Constitution, the Bible, and the third verse of The Rising by Bruce Springsteen. Never seen anything like it. He was equal parts storyteller and scholar. He paused near the end. He looked across the faces in the courtroom. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the case for night fishing. The courtroom erupted. Cheers! clapping. I thought I would burst. Never been so proud in my life. I leaned over. Where did you learn to do that? Television. Perry Mason reruns. Order, order. The judge stood up, unsettled by the outburst. He was a storm cloud. The room quieted. The law is clear. My legs trembled. But interpreting the meaning is not. Show the professor and his son out of the courtroom. Case dismissed. We arrived home at 5.30 a.m. Dirty, wet, and tired. Dad clicked on the oven. I dug her favorite pan out of the back of a cabinet. We buttered slices of bread. I spooned loads of cinnamon sugar. I slid the pan in the broiler just the way she used to do it whenever we celebrated. We sat at the kitchen table. Dad leaned back in his chair. That fish was every bit of six pounds. He sounded like a fisherman, quick to stretch the truth. Sure was. I wiped sugar from my lips with the back of my hand. Did you see the judge's face? The whole courtroom was convinced. I sounded like a junior law partner. It had been a long time since the kitchen smelled like cinnamon toast, and it stirred memories. Every now and then, she would burn it, he said. My face shined. I remember. Memories warmed my brain. Lavender. Her hair always smelled like lavender. Okay, so thanks so much again, Kevin, for sharing your story with us. We're gonna dive right in to talking about it. So, Lori, what are your, what were your first impressions on reading the story?
0: Yeah, so my first impression was this story just made me go, like, aww, mm-hmm. <laughs> by the end of it, like, it was just, it was so sweet, um, and I was just, you know, like, had, like, a little bit of, like, a tear forming at the end of my eye, because I was like, "Oh, family. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, I was. So
1: I was thinking that, yeah, I had the same reaction. And it's really sweet. And we're not necessarily, you know, we don't have a lot of hope, necessarily, when it opens for this relationship, given how given how the father is kind of, you know, locked in his study, and that and it unfolds really in a in a lovely way. So we do have this kind of, we're left with this, it's not catharsis so much in me, but it's like, yeah, I don't know what I would call that. Oh, you know, it's hopeful, it's beautiful, like, you you know, there's hope for us after all, I guess. Um, and then I think also, you know, we've got some really lovely images and metaphors and details that really give the story, you know, the, it, there's the overall structure of the story that feels like it's really working. But then we've got these really lovely details that I think that add to the experience and, and make, yes. it, make it memorable.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with that. Like, I, you know, was, I wholly believed that I was in Tennessee, somewhere close to or maybe within Nashville, like going fishing.
1: Yeah, like you really get the feeling that you're in the South and you couldn't really mistake it for any other place, I think, even if you've never been there. So, I think what was the, one of the other things?
0: I also really loved um, in the beginning, like the little piece of humor of the, um, like, I'm gonna go chainsaw the Miller's Magnolia, naked. (laughs) Yes,
1: yeah. And so that, right, that really telegraphs what happens, you know, that, that whatever else happens in the story, there is going to be humor. So we do have a really nice setup for that and so yeah so let's how about we talk about the you know the overall structure as a story and then kind of get into the get into the elements of that so in terms of the structure how does it how do you feel it works you know from a story grid point of view we're looking at the five commandments of story but we're also looking at the genre and some other things but let's start like overall how's it working
0: yeah i thought the author did a really great job in terms of the five commandments of storytelling um so i sort of i broke everything out into seven i believe it's seven seven different scenes and all but one of them i easily identified like the inciting incident, the progressive complications, the crisis, the climax, and the resolution. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to like, I'm clapping my hands, although not very loudly. (laughs) I I just want to applaud the author for all of the work that it takes to make those individual um, scenes work at that that level.
1: You know, that's a great point, Lori, because even knowing what you need to do you know so if you're you're familiar with the with the story grid method or whatever method that you're using to kind of develop the story structure and and revise your story that just knowing what needs to be in there isn't executing what needs to be in there well and so that takes a lot of work and you know and and practice and wrestling with the draft so yeah so i think the author has done a nice job of that and should feel very proud of it
0: yeah and i mean even just like another point just beyond the five commandments like he did a really kevin did a very nice job of separate like making it clear when like there was a change when there's a transition like you know now they're getting in the car now they're getting in the police car you know now they're climbing up the ridge now they're at the lake like I always knew where I was in space and in time and you know he kept the point of view consistent and did those things that like you know we don't always point out as editors but when they are wrong or missing or something has gone haywire it's like it's really hard to read the story
1: yeah yeah that's it's that's uh that's another good point because yeah it is harder sometimes to tell all of the things that are working in something that's working and it's easier to identify when they're not um yes so. Yeah,
0: so <laughs> I just wanted to make sure that we got as much praise for all of the things that are really awesome in here uh, before we started talking about the things that, you know, for this story could use like a little bit of tweaking. So we talked so we just mentioned like the five commandments with the each of the scenes. Mm-hmm. Um and the thing about so this is really so this is a short story and so what we what we want to do with these seven scenes is we want them to add up to something greater so you Mm -hmm. know like i have the inciting incident is going to bed the um second scene is like the car ride off to the adventure the third scene is arrival at the park you know um then there's fishing at the park um then their cops arrive, and there's a transition, and then the professor defends himself, and they go home.
1: Okay, so one of the things that we, you know, that we want to see with a story is that it's not just a series of events. So the scenes are you know, I think, as you said earlier, that they contribute to the entire story and that the entire story is moving in a certain way and changing in a certain way. And so a lot of times we talk about value shifts or life value shifts that do this. And could you talk a little bit about what they are and why they're important?
0: Yeah. So, what a value shift is? So, generally, the way that I like to think of them is that this, is, these are human needs, and um, they can be things like, you know, safe to or danger to safe, or vice versa. Um, so, those are changes like in your, sur- like your fundamental survival as a human. Like, are you hungry? Do you have enough to eat? Like those so there's there's three different types of value changes so the first one is like those basic survival like air water food you know shelter warmth those sorts of things and then there there's two other kinds of value shifts so the second one is um is relationship based so like Are you alone versus, you know, in part of a group? Mm -hmm. Do you belong to the group or are you an outcast? Those kinds of things. And then the third type of value shift is like really subtle internal emotional. So that's stuff like, are you hopeless and by the end of the scene you have hope? Mm -hmm. Those kinds of things. And. Every scene will have a small chain shift in value from like you know hopeless to hope alone to together and it might have it might have all three of those levels or it might have one or it might have two mm-hmm. of the types but So we want each of the individual scenes to have those. And then when we have a larger set of scenes that makes up a sequence or a short story, we want those to add up to something greater than the sum of the parts.
1: Right. Okay. So we're having that, you know, across the entire story, whether we're talking short story or an epic fantasy novel that's, you know, many, many, many uh, scenes that there should be a change or a life value shift from the beginning to the end of that that takes place as a result of the end, the, excuse me, the events of the story. But then also within the smaller units of story, we have similar changes that result from the events that happen within them. So those changes are happening from the beginning to the end. Sometimes there's a middle kind of way station that will be just a little bit different. But then we are the protagonist and the people around the protagonist as well probably are are changing and responding to these changes. So... Yeah because and and why is this important?
0: Well, <laughs>
1: there's a softball for you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, every story is about change, you know, and the changes are actually very specific to specific genres. So, like this story, it could be a crime story, which is more focused on the overall beginning to end value being about justice versus injustice. Mm -hmm. Um, This could also be a story about grieving family members Mm -hmm. where the, um, you know, the beginning could be, you know, you have these two separate people who are bonded by the end.
1: Yeah, so I was thinking. Well, and the author has identified this as a, a coming of age kind of story, so that would implicate a worldview maturation plot, and what we, you know, so the the value in that is that someone starts out as naive or unworldly, or you know, kind of in the dark about things. Maybe they've got some black and white thinking. Maybe they think their father is one way, and by the end of the story, he gains sophistication or worldliness, or you could say it another way, that he learns that there are other facets to his father's personality. And so that's one way to... Look at it. You could also look at it. I think in terms of, and this is, I think, sort of connected to what you were talking about, is that a a worldview education plot, which is another change in thought, but is more of a change from meaninglessness to meaning, or insignificance to significance, like. I don't, I feel like I don't really matter to, I feel like I really do matter. And so of those, so the first of those, To Kill a Mockingbird is a great example. And, And then Worldview Education is Pygmalion, or My Fair Lady is a good example. But also The Remains of the Day. And, oh, and there's a... There's a British series with Sean Bean called Broken that's set in Northern England, and he's a priest. And that's a great example of a series that is also worldview education. So there's some good examples, and we can include more in the show notes. But but, so the point is we could have, you know, same facts or – events same
0: plot events
1: same plot events same characters but create a different story and thus leave the leave the reader with a different experience and a different feeling at the end
0: Exactly. Because this kind of all ties back into like, what do you want the reader to feel when you read their story? Or when they read your story? Do you want them to be like, oh my gosh, you know, like, let's take so for in this story, do you want them to have the experience of like, oh my gosh, they totally got away with like fishing in the totally illegal place? (laughs) (laughs) Like, is that what's important? Um, I don't think that it is. But Um, is a possibility, or is it, like, do you want to emphasize the relationship, like, between the, the father and the son, and then, you know, it, within each of those, like, how do you want the reader to, like, what kinds of feelings do you want the, the reader to have within those? Do you want them to be, like, touched? Do you want them to be, like, you know, crying, um, or, do you want them to be crying of laughter or crying of joy? <laughs> <laughs> or, right. like, really, what is it that you want them to feel? Because I feel like um, <laughs> um, this, I, I feel like right now the writing is a little bit fuzzy in terms of what the desired reading experience is. And I think pretty much the rest of our conversation is going to be like if you want the readers to feel this way, then do this.
1: Right. So that's a great point, because a lot of writers will talk about, well, it's kind of a mashup. It's a little of this and a little of that and a little of something else. And really, some of the greatest stories that I've read, the ones that have been most enjoyable, have been mashups or have had elements of different genres, you know, mixed in. But how do we do that in a way that doesn't make the story confusing, or the reader doesn't know exactly how to feel at the end of it.
0: Yeah, and I think it's okay for the reader to not know how to feel at the end. But as a writer, you want to have an intention of like what you want to get across to the reader. You have no control over whether that happens for them. But the best writing I think comes out of having a very clear intention of this is what I want to say this is what I'm hoping the reader will experience and trying to you know uh march all the elements of your story in the same direction so that you have the best possible chance of getting that desired experience across
1: right so if we're looking at you know what if we're like wanted to have the crime aspect of this story, but also wanted to have the relationship aspect, we would choose which one is the primary or what we would call the global story, and then add elements of the other sort of secondary story to supplement that. And exactly. to, you know, make those, to help make help. those value shifts you would, you know, just add those elements. And I'm not sure if I'm being completely clear about that and what I mean.
0: But Can I try and yeah. say what I think you're trying to say? Take it so back. So basically, so let's say that we did want to uh, emphasize the crime element. So then the from the beginning of the story to the end of the story, we want to focus on the change in justice and in injustice. Mm-hmm. And we want that to be the thing that comes, like every single scene should have a connection to justice and injustice. It might also have the elements about the relationship between the the father and son, but the first thing that it has to get across is that it has to contribute to getting us either closer to justice or further away from justice.
1: Right, so one is Purposeful and is really driving the story, and one is supplementing and adding to what's already there. And the, you know, those two different types of stories are going to have different obligatory scenes and conventions, or what you might call tropes, or you might call just. Generally speaking, reader expectations. So, when a reader picks up a story and they want to, they want a, they're looking for a crime story. Then, what do they expect to find? Well, there should be a crime. Uh, so we we need a a criminal or a villain, um, and we need a either a professional or amateur detective to be trying to bring the criminal to justice and obviously there are other elements that we would want to include and so focusing on those and using those to drive the change in the story would be a great way to make sure that the that the main story and that 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 main feeling that you want to deliver at the end is consistent and primary, stays, you know, stays front and center.
0: Exactly. Yeah, and we haven't talked about this, and I wonder if if maybe we should have brought this up earlier, but I'm really curious as to, like, what the author's intention is for this story. Like, if he has plans to try and get it published somewhere because that's another thing that can influence like what direction you take the story in. Um, so like, do you know about that?
1: I don't know, no, that's, and that's a great question because your specific audience is going to have different expectations over and above what the you know what they are for the particular genre and so we know that the author was working on a coming-of-age story but we don't know where so what are some considerations that we might think about depending on where we're going to share a particular story
0: yeah so I in looking with this story saw I, I thought of a couple of places that the author could go with it. So one, this is a fishing story. Mm-hmm. So he might want to target, like if he was going to try and, and sell the story, like um sporting journals, you know, the hunting and... Fi- I'm sure that the hunting and fishing magazines of the world, you know, are dying for great fiction stories about um fishing. So that's, you know gonna probably be a much different audience than if he went after the more like coming of age aspect of it which that could be something like oh gosh do teenage boys have magazines like <laughs> That's <a laughs> about good stuff? question. I, I feel like they <laughs> might want that this kind of this kind of a kind of a thing
1: yeah it might not be a magazine anymore but there are probably sites i mean i'm thinking of there right my my son is not yet a teen but is really into like graphic novels and if you you know there're probably online places where they can read stories like this but i guess the point is to really understand who your audience is
0: yeah and so we've just mentioned um, two audiences that have vastly different ages and you know reading expectations Um, so and I just wanted to mention so one other way that this could go is like you know the author might want to go like a more literary direction and Mm -hmm. because there's definitely literary magazines that are dying for more great stories Right. and so that would be like a totally different A totally different audience and each of those audiences brings with them expectations around language, Mm -hmm. expectations around the type of story, um, expectations sort of around like is this sad, like the kinds of feelings that they want to have in reading a story. So if you're targeting teenage boys as your reader you are probably not going to emphasize the more like memoir-esque elements of your story you're probably going to emphasize the action parts
1: right and if yeah if you're if you're delivering to for example a sporting magazine or audience then you would definitely be focusing on those and uh, and less on the emotional journey of the characters
0: right and if you were going for like a literary magazine then you would focus on you know the character's emotional journey you would also look at your use of metaphor um probably quite closely you would look more at you you would emphasize different elements of the story and sort of make those more stand out more
1: right right like the auditory nature of the or the auditory experience of the story with the sound of the words and the sounds of the sentences and and that yeah. So,
0: those yeah, are all.
1: Yeah, go I ahead. Had, sorry,
0: I had one more. Yeah, <laughs> which we right. didn't, which we didn't include, which I think is probably also a broader topic. But you know, if you're going after the fishing journals or the teenage boys, I also think that you'd probably be much more successful if you um went with more of the humor and the comedy of it oh, and yeah. less emphasis on the the drama side right yeah that's
1: a great point too because they love yeah i just i happened to go on a, a field trip with my son and his class to the big downtown library yesterday and It was really interesting to see the things that they were interested in. Now, they're tweens as opposed to teens, but they were, it was funny stuff. It was action stuff. It was, you know, they were really engaged with that kind of thing. And for the boys um, and the girls were, you know, they had slightly different interests, but that being in the world kind of experience is really important, it seems, to the things that they're, what they're looking for in the story as they're, you know, looking forward to being teens.
0: So when you say being in the world, what what exactly do you mean, like, by that?
1: So going... So leaving home and going on, you know, like an adventure, like so that the aspects of this story that we might highlight are, you know, what could happen going fishing at night and, you know, that they're breaking the rules is very important, not just the rules, the law, and those kinds of things and that he's in places that he's never been before. Right. He's never been in the the courtroom or at the jail. And so he's really, you know, out in the world taking in new experiences, which works really well for a combination of like action or crime and and worldview maturation, because it's somebody who has an idea about how the world is and then changes that just a little bit. So one of the things, you know, we talked about reader expectations and we talk about them in, in the, within the story grid methodology as obligatory scenes. And conventions and so these are important because they produce the experience that you want the reader to have and though it feels like well these are just arbitrary rules much like the ones preventing fishing at the uh, at the lake uh, in our story today but but they're based on understanding the way that readers read stories and take them in and make sense of them and so the obligatory scenes aren't just things that are made up so you you want to make sure that you're including all of the things that are really important for the reader to experience on their way from beginning to end so were there any that stood out to you as you were looking at this things that that felt like oh this is not quite as strong as it could be, could be tweaked to make the story stronger.
0: Yes. Yeah. So my biggest disappointment for this story was that we didn't get the legal speech. (laughs) We have the greatest mind, you know, in the country as our character. And we don't really get to hear the details of his fine thinking. And so I was super disappointed that there weren't more details about this case of Billington versus the United States and how exactly that, you know, justified their little night fishing adventure.
1: Yeah, I I felt too, that this was a really important, an important scene for both and both in terms of delivering that you know really satisfying ending but also in terms of understanding the dad and and the events too I mean so I know that citing Bruce Springsteen for example isn't likely to carry a lot of weight with with a night court judge but given the right circumstances it, it's you know, it's possible. And so I want to see how that, you know, how the father essentially charms or convinces the, the judge to essentially forgo normal courtroom etiquette and procedure and, and, you know, to continue listening. Now, it's, right on the surface, we're getting it, we get a, you know, a list of the things that the professor cites and, you know, is including in the speech. But if we were to actually hear the words, so this is this is in summary, we get, you know, he cited the Constitution, the Bible, the third verse of the rising by Bruce Springsteen. And all of that like that's it's interesting and funny, but it would be even more powerful if we actually heard what he was saying. And so yeah. I think
0: Yeah. And go can ahead. I add something to that? Yeah. So um so one of my favorite stories ever is actually The Devil and Daniel Webster oh. um, by Stephen Vincent Benet, and that is another story about a lawyer, mm-hmm. um, Daniel Webster, who was a real person, but this story, that story is like a tall tale of um, basically there's a guy in New Hampshire that sells his soul to the devil, and he wants out of the deal, and the way that he gets out of the deal is that he goes and finds Daniel Webster um, to take his case. Oh nice. And <laughs> and so that story it doesn't give you like, you know, the quote unquote trial happens all through a night and like the jury is, you know, like all kinds of dead people that were traitors. Um to the country of the United States but like what it does tell you is that Daniel Webster is the type of person that can cast a spell Mm -hmm. over even these you know people who have done terrible things and shouldn't be like Um, At risk of falling under his spell. Uh And so I felt like what I really wanted to get out of um, Out of Kevin's story here is like well is is the dad charming? Everyone like how Mm -hmm. is, is he like casting a spell? Is it just his logic that wins the argument? Like what is his sort of special gift that makes him able to get them out of a jam?
1: That's a great point because we want to we do want to see like what turns this what turns this scene. And at the beginning of this scene they're you know they're in a lot of trouble. And by the end of the scene they're not in any trouble. And so it's in fact they're in a much better place right than than at the beginning of the story where the protagonist is kind of dreading in a way like this this anniversary and so yeah seeing how he does it like the mechanism that he uses and which reminds me one of the things that I was thinking as I read it is that it feels a little bit like deus ex machina which is in the you know, the, the old, the ancient Greek stories where the gods would just come down and fix things or change things or make things happen. And it's not very satisfying in stories today. And it feels a little like that. It's like, oh, he stood up and he did this talk, and it was so powerful that the judge let us go. And it's not that brief, but it's, you know, it's on the verge of that. And so if we could actually see what's yeah, what the dad does to bring everybody under a spell or, yeah, or charm them or convince them, then that would really make for a more powerful ending to the whole thing. Yeah,
0: and it would also give us some insight into the father-son relationship as well. Um,
1: Yeah, and I was – because I was curious about, you know, for my just – as a story consumer i was thinking oh i'd like to find out what you know part of this is the way that the the pro- the narrator protagonist is is perceiving his father but part of it is you know like that his reputation with his son essentially has probably been earned to a certain extent if for nothing else than you know hiding in his study and not really engaging fully and so un, you know if we see the if we see the speech if there is a way to use that speech to convey why the change took place in him then that would that would be like an exponential, exponentially more powerful for the ending and support all of the shifts that happen.
0: Yeah. And I also think that, you know, so we don't know what the professor is doing when he's locked away in his little study. Yeah. Like he could have spent the past two years studying all of the laws related to, you know, trespassing on park property and, you know, fishing and all of that kind of stuff. And so, you know, maybe what he is doing in that time is actually something that he's doing out of love, Mm -hmm. not something that he's doing out of, like, disconnection. And so, like, just knowing what he does at the end, it would, that would, again, just make that, give us that, like, emotional moment, just make it just even more powerful. Like, it wouldn't just be, ah, uh, like, I would be full-on bawling. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> yes. That happens to me, too, so I completely understand that.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's also another way to tie this back to the the value shifts and the um, you know, for the genre. So genres are also tied to our theme or also sometimes called the controlling idea. Mm -hmm. And so it could be something, you know, like, is the theme of the story something like true justice is served when we act in service of those we love the most, even if we technically break the law, Mm -hmm. you know, like that's one option that ties the story to, to justice and injustice. Um, it could also be something, you know, that's less about the justice and more just about, like, humans form strong bonds when they risk everything to give they, the ones they love the experience of a lifetime. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's great. So in terms of then the, you know, the style of the story, are there, are there what kinds of ways can we you know support the story and make it even stronger? Like if we're talking about how do we take a story that's doing really well and make it wow, as you said earlier, that how would you go about that in terms of the style of the story?
0: Yeah, so I think there's sort of two things that we should touch on. One is um thinking about like the emotional journey of our characters and making sure that we have little um, like anchors throughout the story that let us know where the characters are. So that's sort of like topic number one. And then the other topic is specifically if you want to go, well, let's just talk specifically, like if you want to make it more, more of a comedy, more emphasis on the humor then, um, like, how could we get that in? Yeah, so I felt like one of the things, and I'm actually not sure if this is exactly style or if you want to, you know, categorize it in some other way, but I felt like there were, there was a little bit more that could have been done to establish the relationship between the father and the son. And, like, I really loved the I think I said earlier in our conversation about the, like, I'm going to go chainsaw the Miller's Magnolia. Right. Um, and, like, I think that you the author could have taken that even another step further. When we're doing things in comedy, one thing to keep in mind is um, like, it kind of takes three, a, a, a repeat of three, to set up a pattern and then break it. So, okay. like, you could do something like I'm going to go chainsaw the Miller's Magnolia before I go upstairs. I'm going to go, you know, dye the cat green. <laughs> I'm going to go. Yeah. And so like for the first two things, oh, I forgot the word naked on the first one. So if we had two things that were crazy, then the third thing could be like, I'm going to go file my taxes for 2017. Right. You know? So that's like the crazy, crazy, normal, and Mm -hmm. then you can also do the opposite of normal, normal, crazy, so.
1: Okay, so you're setting up an expectation with the first and the second, and then, you know, and then you're breaking it, and then you break it, so however, if it's crazy, crazy, normal, or normal, normal, crazy, or, you know, end of the line, kind of, you know, like you would want to push it really whether it's normal or crazy yeah and i would say the
0: more frequent um grouping is normal normal crazy town Uh Um, but you can you can go either way and the thing that i think that if like so the author does establish in the narration that this is a pattern that this has been going on you know night after night
1: right and
0: i think that if he showed us like basically doing like progressively complicating (laughs) Uh these things um, that would be another way to sort of give us some more insight as to what's happening in this relationship
1: right yeah yeah so these are things you can do to kind of to really punch up the experience for the reader and take a story that's yeah the story that's working and that's you know that's good and produces a lovely reaction in the reader and then make it even stronger and kind of push them over the top so they're sobbing because <laughs> yes because that's what you want
0: <laughs> yeah yeah and I mean so I was talking about what the protagonist could say you also can play with how the um how the father reacts Uh so like maybe when he says he's going to go file his taxes he like pats him on the head or maybe he says something you know related to legal something or like he's going to go study you know the supreme court cases from 2016 i don't know right and like the, the the maybe the father looks at him stuff like that like you can kind of play around with like how do you what is it that you want to communicate about the relationship between the father and the son and um let's just be directive (laughs) in the beginning we want to communicate how distant they are like how they are just totally not able to talk to each other
1: right right that's great
0: Oh, you know, there was one other thing that wasn't particularly well established that I think is very important to the story, and that is we need to know how both the father and son relate to fishing. Like is the f- has the father ever fished? Has he never fished? Mm-hmm. Is the son been an always fisher or is this something that he picked up since his his mother died? Um, You know, did his mother teach him to fish? Like that, knowing what significance the fishing has to the family, I think also is something else that just really adds the like emotional layer to the story. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point, because we know it's important. And the son is very you know he's very experienced he's got a lot of apparatus uh, or gear for his you know and he knows a lot like he he has acquired a lot of knowledge and and his and honed his intuition about the sport but we we don't know where that comes from if that's just a natural interest or yeah if it's arising from something else and then yeah like understanding did the father ever fish before i think that's a great point because that sets us up for understanding how far the father is going outside his you know i think the point was made that he's way outside his comfort zone but that's the narrator's position or belief and we are not completely sure if that is um if objectively we could say that, and if, you know, there might be more to this father than meets the eye.
0: Yeah, and I think that um, it's sort of emphasizing the ways that he's out of his comfort zone is another opportunity for comedy as well. Mm-hmm. hmm Yeah. And I think that there's already some things in there. I mean, we have the professor with broken glasses, like he's all bedraggled <laughs> by the time the police arrive. He's so, wearing
1: khakis and a button down shirt to go fishing in the middle of the night.
0: <laughs> yeah, so I think that, um, you know, if you did want to emphasize that element, like how the police sort of react to him. Cause like, mm-hmm. I mean, you have you have someone who is an esteemed member of the community <laughs> who is showing up as a wreck. Right. And so, like, how are they going to respond to that? And how can you use those responses to communicate more to the reader about who your character is and make them, you know, just really shape their expectations and understanding of, like, who this is and what is happening?
1: Oh, those are great points. Great points. All right. So it just so happens that you brought an editorial mission with you I think. I is did. that true? Oh, I <laughs> knew I could count on you.
0: Yes. Yeah, so what the editorial mission is, so um, so basically what we're going to do is I would like you dear listener to take a scene or a sequence from a masterwork so your favorite novel, film, TV show that is closest to the story that you want to write and identify what shifts in value from the beginning to the end. So that could be, you know, something about survival. It could be something about relationships. It could be, you know, somebody's internal emotional journey. So identify the value from beginning to end and then look at how does the author or filmmaker or storyteller establish that value at the beginning? What kinds of things do they do in the beginning? What do they do in the middle? And what do they do at the end that tell you where the character is, where the protagonist is in terms of that value?
1: That's great. And then once you kind of get the lay of the land, so to speak, in a masterwork, then you could take a scene or sequence of scenes from your own work in progress and identify those same value shifts from the beginning to the end and see how or see whether you've established them. Like are those, have you established at the beginning that this, you know, that a particular life value is in effect and then across the story how does it change and is it clear in the end and then once you see if those things are present those elements are present then you can look at how can you make them more clear how can you show the reader without you know without necess- like doing it on the nose without make being explicit about it how can you make it really clear without saying okay folks the life value starts out as injustice and we're going to go to justice, you know. <laughs> so and then and of course, like when you're looking at those value shifts, you want to look at how they're related to the global genre. So the primary story that you want to tell each of those scenes or see, you know, or or the entire sequence should be connected to or related to the big global shift that you want to produce for for the reader. So I just want to remind you that if you want to get these editorial missions delivered right to your inbox, you can go to writership.com slash episodes And if you listen to the podcast while you're on the go, this is a great solution so that you can, you don't have to try to hold it in your mind while you are doing all the other things that you do in your day. And I want to thank Lori Puma so much for joining me today. It's been really fun to talk about this and I really appreciate your insights on the story and story structure and making them really powerful.
0: Well, thank you so much, Leslie. It's just been a pleasure. And thank you to Kevin for giving us such a wonderful story to read and talk about.
1: As we wrap things up today, I wanted to remind you that if you enjoy the show and want to show your support, there are a few ways you can do that we rely on the generous support of our Patreon crew, they cover the cost of podcast hosting and our time in preparing for the show. We'll have new Patreon rewards next month, but in the meantime, for information about those, you can visit patreon.com writership. If you would like to show your support in other ways, please tell a writer friend about us or leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher. If you'd like to have your five pages reviewed, please visit writership.com slash submissions. If you have a writing question or topic you'd like us to tackle, drop us a line at hello at writership.com. That's it for episode 128. We'll see you next time on the Writership Podcast.